Grant, performed by Terry Schnaubelt. Prologue Winter of 1945, Brunskill, Pennsylvania There is nothing lovely about Minnesink Avenue. If it ever could have been said to enjoy a period of prosperity, when steam engines came along toward the end of the last century to boost the production of the tweeds and plaids, the blankets and shawls, the zephyrs, and most of all the rough, heavy cottonade, called Negro cloth everywhere but in the center city sales room, that period came at the expense of the stooped and mute workers, some of them as young as seven, working 13 hours a day, and never earning enough to rise out of the cheap, cramped housing in the floodplain of the Schuylkill. In the 20s, the English and Scottish and Germans gave way to the Italians and Eastern Europeans, moving their families into the cramped row houses. Across the river, Philadelphia may have been dubbed the workshop of the world, but in the mills, the spinners and carters and mules toiled as miserably as ever, making carpets, upholstery fabric, and woolen plush, and still only the bosses seemed to thrive, moving their families up the river to Roxborough. The mill complexes expanded, reinforced concrete and brick grafted onto the old stone, ingesting the workers hungrily before dawn and belching out smoke as though they had swallowed whole the modest dreams and hopes, the bodies bent by the work and crippled by swollen joints and spinners' thysis. The depression delivered its merciless judgment and sent the last of the cotton south. Their eyes finally open, perhaps. The bosses strived and pleaded, but the workers, long accustomed to calamity and so inured to tragedy as to be nearly indifferent to their fate, took a gamble and demanded six more dollars a week. The last of the textile mills were shuttered, and the only smoke in the sky was from pulp and paper production. All those buildings, empty save for squatters and thieves, their forges and furnaces cold. When they occasionally caught fire and burned, the few souls who remained in the tenements on the hill watched from their filthy windows and cursed in half a dozen languages. There is no reason for you to find yourself here. The odors wafting from the river are foul. The grit in the air, drifting from the rail tracks, will find its way into your eyes and nostrils and lips, until you taste ash that makes you think of the terrible stories coming back from Europe, the burnt skeletons they found in the pits, all those babies killed before they could ever find their mother's breasts. Or maybe it is this news that compelled you to walk here, leaving behind the golden glow windows in the nicer streets, away from the river and the mills, where widows and grief-dumb mothers and luckier women alike are washing dishes after the meals that still take us all aback, so accustomed are we to the penury of the ration books. Who knows what to do with a chop fried in butter? After all these months of watery stews bobbing with offal, it's as though our bodies recoil from plenty. Of course you've lost someone. Everyone has. But maybe you've lost more than most. Or maybe you lost the one to whom you could tell your secrets. So now they echo in your hollow breast with nowhere to go. These secrets might propel you down these steep streets where the ghosts of the wretched seem to linger. In front of the old woolen mill, you pause to light a cigarette and stamp your feet against the chill, your boots making prints in the thin snow that settled on the town like a feather tick since the weak sun surrendered.
inhaling with no great pleasure, you notice a faint glow from within the largest of the buildings, the original stone one that housed the mill's offices, where visitors were received. But it is not so different from all the others now, windows boarded and broken, anything of value carted off long ago. The cornerstone is carved with the numerals 1881. Over the door of the legend, Murphy and Son, stands stately and proud. There is no way for you to know that the younger Murphy perished from influenza before the doors of the mill ever opened for business. The last man to own the building was named Brink, and he had no sons at all. Brink was a modest man, and a silent one, so the workers who loomed the fine wovens in his factory had no access to his inner thoughts and dreams, except on the few occasions, half a dozen at most, in which he drank at lunch and came back.